Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Frogs War podcast. TCU football is 1-0 after knocking off Arkansas Pine Bluff 39-7 at home on Saturday night in front of a pretty good crowd. Um, I am Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Trebowasser. And we're going to talk all about that game and do some around the Big 12 and some quarterback talk all in this episode. So stay tuned um, because we got a really good show for you today. But Melissa, before we get into everything that we're talking about, give me your thoughts and feels after week one of the college football season. Well, you know, like Gary Patterson, I'm happy to be 1-0. and uh, Not the prettiest looking football game we've ever seen at the Carter, but I thought that the stadium atmosphere was, was really exceptional and the changes that they made uh, were overall overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the big screen was awesome. The festivities around the stadium, the way people were active and involved in the game through most of the first two and a half quarters uh, was awesome. So I'm, I'm glad football's back. I loved getting to see some of the true freshmen that we have available to us this year participate and, and do some good things. And uh, I would say that, that at this point, we got what we needed, which is TC won, and nobody got hurt. And that was the most we could hope for in week one. Yeah, it is. I mean, we talked about expectations last week, and I think those were the two big things that we touched on was that people stay healthy and that the Frogs don't. Uh, have you know a disaster of a start to their season losing to a team like Pine Bluff and both of those things happened Pine Bluff had a lot of guys go down though I mean one of my notes about this game is that it was almost four and a half hours long yeah because you know I think in the third quarter alone it was an hour of of third quarter and there were probably seven or eight injury timeouts taken for Arkansas Pine Bluff guys I mean, it was uh, guys were going down left and right for the Golden Lions Uh, fortunately they were not doing the same thing for the Frogs. Ennis Gaines got a little bit banged up, but he came back in and made some good plays uh, afterwards. It looked like that was just cramps, really. I'm going to go ahead and say that one was gamesmanship because remember, that was right before a flag got thrown. And I think that it was that cut block or whatever it was. And I wonder if in my head if Ennis Gaines was staying down to make sure that flag got thrown. But that's the kind of wily veteran move that, that a guy like that would possibly make. It's fair. I mean, that's a fair thought. I, I, I did, I did see him getting worked on on the sideline. I don't know if the the training staff would be up for embellishing something probably like not. that either. Probably but, not. Probably so you not. Know. Maybe it was cramps. But it, you know, the good news is is that he was back in the game, pretty much the next series, and was making plays and stuff. Uh, but let's get into Melissa three up and three down from this game. We'll start with the first down, and that was something that you've already mentioned. This was really a sloppy football game for the Horn Frogs. They had seven fumbles, uh, a couple of muff- muffed punts, some major drops from wide receivers that you don't normally see drop the ball. Uh, and overall, it just really felt like a lackluster effort. Uh, Melissa, what were your thoughts on all of the drops and the fumbles and all of that stuff? You know, it, it's one of those things where you kind of want to write it off. Oh, it's it's the first week. You've got a lot of guys that haven't played significant snaps, taking snaps for, for the Frogs. Uh, maybe it's a little bit rusty. Maybe uh, they just aren't used to game speed. Uh, so I kind of want to write it off a little bit to, to game one. But then I also have some concerns because we've seen this before. I felt like drops were a huge problem in 2016, and, and we saw how that went. Uh, but I also wonder, too, if maybe a part of that was – the different quarterbacks. Um, we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but Delton and Duggan throw two very different balls. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe there's a little bit of an adjustment period as a wide receiver that had something to do with it. Um, as far as the, the fumbles on the punt returns, that's just, 
that's just Jalen trying to make too many plays. Um, I, I would, I'm not too concerned about that, but, but maybe you have a little more insight into how worried we should be. I don't know that I have more insight. Uh, I, I think it was a focus issue for a couple of these guys. I mean, you, we don't see Jalen Rager drop footballs. That, is, as far as the passing goes um, and the receiving goes, we just don't see him drop footballs. So I think yeah. he'll get that corrected. I'm not worried about that. I am a little bit concerned about the muffed punts, though. He had three muffed punts on Saturday, uh, and a couple of times you saw Gary really light into him when he got back to the sidelines. Um, and afterwards, uh Patterson mentioned, you know, some, we don't, we have some guys who don't know what punt safe means. And so he was pretty, pretty brutal, uh, it, both on the field and afterwards about how he felt about punt returns, uh, on Saturday night. I, I have, I'm a little worried about putting one of your best players back there to return punts anyways. And after what happened on Saturday night, I would be totally fine with moving away from Rager as a punt returner. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I was very concerned when he kept going out there. That's a, such a dangerous position for a wide receiver to be in. Um, and there's other guys that are so important to the team, obviously, but that I think can, can be almost as effective. And maybe you save Jalen for when you really need a big play. Because um, we know what he can do with the ball in his hands once he gets it. I think that the muffing the punts was more of a, a focus issue than anything or him trying to make a big play against an overmatched team. But I did not expect to see him doing returning punts in the second half and was very concerned every time he stepped foot on the field in that role. Yeah, me too. Me too. Especially against Arkansas Pine Bluff in the second half when, you know, you even if it was a closer game than you anticipated it being in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter, I, that's, it's just not worth the risk, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. But, I agree yeah. completely. Um, the first up of the game, though, and you've mentioned this one already, too, is that the Frogs are 1-0, and when you start the season against a team like Arkansas Pine Bluff, the only goal that you should have is to not have an embarrassing loss. We saw schools across the country get challenged by uh, teams that they probably should have just handled easily. The biggest one that comes to mind is Tennessee losing to Georgia State at home, a team that was 2-10 and last year. Uh, so that's, you know, Tennessee fans are ready to burn everything down. Jeremy Pruitt's probably not going to last very long there. Uh, if the fans have anything to say about it at this point, you know, you saw West Virginia struggle with, uh, who did, it wasn't William and Mary. Who did they play? Uh, um, they played James Madison, which is actually James really Madison. good. That's a really, the, really great, uh, FCS team. It is a but, really great FCS team, and Iowa State played a really FCS. great FCS team yeah. in Northern Iowa. And the fact of the matter is, though, is that those are FCS teams, and you shouldn't yep. really struggle with them. Iowa State went to triple overtime. Uh, you know, you saw schools all over. The, Arkansas only beat po- Portland State by a touchdown. You know, teams Wyoming across the country. Beat, uh, Wyoming beat Missouri, which yeah. was, which was mm-hmm. interesting. That was, that was a, a big surprise as well. Um Nevada came back from 17 points down and beat Purdue, a team that TCU yeah. is playing in a couple of Thanks weeks. Thanks so, for nothing, guys. Purdue. <laughs> On a side note, is it? this is a pro, right? We're talking about an up right now. But does TCU have one of the worst strength of schedules uh, for out-of-conference this year? Yeah, if Purdue is going to do that, yeah. Yeah. Do you think Purdue is going to lose to Vanderbilt now? Um. Oh, man. Man, uh, I, I would expect them to bounce back and get a get a win against Vandy this weekend. That that's a good wake up call moment. And Jeff Brom is a really good coach. Um, 
I don't think they'll be looking ahead to TCU necessarily in that role. So I, I think they're going to come back, get the win, and and hopefully be one and one when the Frogs come to town. Because I do not want to face an angry 0-2 Purdue team at night on their home field. I just don't want to face an 0-2 Purdue team because mm-hmm. it's lose-lose. It's, okay, well, if you beat them, yeah, you beat them. They're 0-2. If you lose to them, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm definitely concerned. I'm really concerned. Um, I think that if we were coming off of a run of teams where we went, oh, yeah, this offense is really competent and aggressive and, and can execute in the red zone, then we'd say, sure, they held back for Arkansas Pine Bluff. But I don't think that most TCU fans have reason to have a lot of confidence in what the Frogs have been doing on that side of the ball for the last several years. Kenny, Kenny Hill had a great season in 2017, but it wasn't like that offense overwhelmed. Um, that was a really good defense and an offense that scored enough to win a lot of ball games. Um, but, but this looked a lot like the same offense that we've seen for since 2015, really. And uh, there just isn't a lot of creativity there's not a lot of production in the red zone. And I think that, you know, P- Gary Patterson talked after the game how they'd been struggling against the TCU defense in the red zone during fall camp as well. And so this is going to be a problem all season long unless we see something completely different in week three. Then I think that there's going to be a lot of conversations had about what needs to change in order to make this defense more uh, just just functional and more um, uh looking like a Big 12 defense. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I do think this is, you talk about the hot seat, and I do think that that, that is absolutely a factual thing. Um, Patterson has been talking since the start of fall camp about how he was going to have more of a say. He was going to have more of a say in how many 
quarterbacks get played and how early uh, he's going to have more of a say on Sonny Cumbie being on the sideline because he didn't seem too happy about the way that that worked out. Yeah. He's going to have more of a say in, in what the Frogs choose to do when. And so I think it's obvious that for the first time in a long time, he's concerned um, and and expects to be expects to see this be a bigger part of he expects to be a bigger part of the TCU offense than he's been in the past. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least it means he's paying attention. He is paying attention, and he needs to be paying attention. But realistically, that's not his forte. And the reason he brought in Cumbie and Meach in the first place was because he knew that he needed to upgrade his offense, and he knew he needed experts to come in and do it for him. And if he's the one that's saying now he's going to get more involved and help make more decisions, I don't know... I just don't know. I got questions. But we'll see. It's only week one. And a lot, like I said, a lot of teams struggled in week one. And we're lucky we want to know. And it could be worse. It could be 0 1 with a loss of Pine Bluff. And that wouldn't exactly. be any favors. Exactly. Yeah. Get, getting a win and getting out of there and having a bye week after is, is, is a positive thing at this point. For sure. For sure. And another. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that has been such a question mark for the Horned Frogs the last several years. And so seeing him come out there and very confidently do his job and do it well uh, was really, really encouraging. I mean, Song is a redshirt senior. He's a really good guy, does a lot in the community. Uh, he's, he's easy to root for. So it was it was good to see him look like he was comfortable in the role. Now, kicking is a week-to-week proposition. It could really be a kick-to-kick proposition. And so we'll see what he looks like against Purdue in a, a much – a more hostile environment, but having him come out and, and execute, and it, it, I mean, the whole unit seemed to execute really, really well, and that, that to me was a super positive thing. Um, it was it was funny afterwards, we actually got to talk to John Song, and, and I can't remember the last time that we saw a kicker in the post-game press conference, probably it was Jaden, but um, asked him, you know, what was it like to be mentoring a guy like Griffin Kell who is coached by the guy that mentored him and Jaden Overcrom and to kind of see that like that whole uh, full circle effect coming down and, and it's kind of a it's kind of a weird little symbiotic relationship we have now with Overcrom coaching up the next generation of kicker and, and Kell did a great job too. Um, he handled kickoffs also, I believe, uh, primarily correct. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so and, and I thought, off. and I thought he did a really nice job with that. So um, definitely more confident than I've been in that position the last several years, uh, but not not ready to to anoint Song as the guy until we see a little bit uh, see him on the road and a high pressure kick. Yeah, I agree. I, you you make some pretty valid points there. I think too, um, you know, it's. As far as distance is concerned, I would have really liked to see Song have to push, you know, 47, 48 yarder through. Sure. Um, but again, five for five is nothing to complain about. I, a, a guy I know once said, you know, never be upset about getting a question right in a getting a question right contest. So I don't know that we should ever be upset when a field goal goes through the uprights uh, when it could have it could have done something else. So. 
you know, I, th- I think it's a positive for Jonathan Song to get into a rhythm like that. Griffin Kell even came in late in the game and kicked an, a, a field goal as well, um, which oddly enough kept Song from tying <laughs> the single game record for most field goals made in a game. That was pretty interesting. Just a little side note there. But, yeah, um, and I. I would not be surprised if everyone was aware of that fact and wanted to keep that for Jaden in a game that didn't count. Yeah, I would be I would be okay with that. Song was uh, was aware and said it was it was a little bit of a bummer, but he was also happy to see Griffin get a chance to kick. Was his kind of remarks on that? But you want your name in the record books. I can about guarantee that that Gary uh, was was well aware of who owned that record prior and wanted to keep it that way, unless unless it had been a game winning kick type situation. Or just, you know, a Big 12 game or something like that. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things, too, another down, the last down that we'll talk about for this game uh, is just the fact that the starters had to play probably a lot more than than we were anticipating them playing because this game was closer than you thought it would be at halftime. It was, what, 16 to nothing at halftime. And uh, TCU, you know, at at one point in the third quarter, it was 22 to 7. And... So they kept the starters in there, and fortunately nobody got hurt. But it's definitely one of those situations where this was a game where you were supposed to be able to get a lot of young guys some reps, and that didn't happen to the extent that uh, the coaching staff probably hoped it would on yeah, Saturday. And, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this four-game redshirt rule, and it's something that Patterson has clearly studied a lot of. Um, you want to get those young guys an opportunity to play, but at the same time you don't necessarily want to burn a game in a game that doesn't matter. Um you know, we saw Darwin Barlow come in late, and I think there were a lot of questions of why is this guy playing now when he's only going to get four games. Um, but by the same token, it was it was really great to see him come in and score, and, and that was a great moment. Um, and him him getting that touchdown for his former high school coach, uh, W. T. Johnston, who who passed away in May. Um, mm-hmm. But he talked about that after the game too. Is that you know how do you balance wanting to play? young guys and get them experience with not wanting to burn a red shirt in case you need them earlier with also not wanting to put your, your guys, your two deep guys um, at risk. And Patterson said that as far as the freshmen went, that if they were in the two deep, they played. If they weren't in the two deep, they didn't. And it would have been nice to pull away a little bit earlier, maybe get some of those third and fourth string guys that you don't expect to have to use a whole lot this season, the experience and the opportunity. Uh, and, and just to see that not happen was a little bit disappointing on a, on a couple of fronts, but ultimately, again, the fact that, that they got out of there without getting hurt is, is the most important thing in that regard. Definitely, definitely. Just the health of the team at this point is something to be to be pleased with, I think. Because um, we just can't take it for granted because we've seen no. it not go our way so many times. So many times. Like last year even, the number of injuries was absolutely absurd. So to have them come away from week one healthy – that's that's great. Now just get through the next two weeks healthy, get through Purdue healthy, you know, all that kind of stuff. Get ready for the Big 12 Absolutely. slate. The last positive is not on-field related, Melissa. It is stadium and fan experience related because I'm seeing all over Facebook and Twitter um, and on uh, a, a ton of message boards and all that kind of stuff, fans for the most part have, have said that this was one of the best – game experiences that they have ever had and you couple that with the sale selling of of beer and wine and hard ciders and all that other stuff that might have had something to do with it but in reality it looks like uh donati has done a tremendous job and his team has done a tremendous job this offseason of really putting together a better game day experience for fans 
Yeah, I think it definitely made a difference. Um, and for the most part, it didn't seem as though things were more out of control than normal. Though I did talk to a friend of mine who uh, works for Fort Worth PD and, and was part of the, the game day experience crew. And he did say that he saw more, heard more action on the walkie-talkies than they're used to. But I think that that's combina- you know, a combination, too, of it. It being a little bit cooler, people feeling like they can move around a little bit more, the long tailgating day before the opener. There could be a lot of things that factored into that, but I thought the the overall atmosphere in the Carter was was unbelievable in the first half, and it was pretty empty by the by the end of the game, by the late the third quarter. But for the most part, people were in there, they were engaged, they were cheering. It was loud. Uh, it was really really good to see that place rocking for a game that doesn't normally those types of games that normally tend to draw a lot of attention. Um, I will say though that undoubtedly the best part of the in-game stadium experience was the uh, UAPB band, which was freaking incredible. And I I love seeing the HBCU schools come into the stadium and just absolutely like rocking the place. And and they were unbelievable. Their fan base was great too. So overall, I thought just a really great, great first night. It was, it was. And, you know, it doesn't hurt that all of the people who were complaining about uh, beer and wine and alcohol sales, uh, the naysayers, it was a big blow for the naysayers when the we started hearing reports yeah. that the Miller Light and Coors Light was getting sold out by halfway through the, the second quarter. Um, tell me fans didn't want it, and you're just you're just a liar at this point. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that was an overwhelming success. Um, it was. And I can't imagine how fewer people there would have been as we crept towards halftime had there not been alcohol sales, it looked like there sure. were more people in the stadium at the start of kickoff than normal. Absolutely. And I'm sure the happy hour had something to do with that. Like there wasn't Undoubtedly. as much. You know, I think uh, over the last few seasons, just talking to some friends of mine who have tailgates, it's, you know, there's a, there's a level, a low level of anxiety about like, okay, well, do we have another beer here and then go in? Or do we step out a couple minutes early from the second quarter to go back to get back to the tailgate and then get back in time for the third quarter? Or do we just bail on the third quarter all the way, all the, all together? Uh, none of that conversation was happening on Saturday. Uh, and instead it was, Oh, well, yeah, we can just buy a beer in the stadium. We can get a shiner or whatever it is that we want to get and it'll all be fine. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately the most important thing is let's get people into the stands. Let's keep them there. Let's win football games. Done, done and done. Check all of those boxes on Saturday night. Melissa, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we will dive into the topic that everybody wants to talk about, quarterbacks. All right, we are back, and we are talking about TCU quarterbacks now. Melissa, Alex Delton, and Max Duggan were the two that played on Saturday night, and we might get into that in a moment. But let's start with Alex Delton. Give me one pro and one con of Alex Delton's game from Saturday night? I think that, uh, A, he came out as a captain. That, to me, is a big pro. Uh, We've been hearing about the type of person he is, the type of leader he is, the type of influence he is in that locker room. And seeing a guy who just arrived a few short months ago already be named a captain, something that Patterson takes very, very seriously, in my mind, that said a lot about him and the way that this team looks at him and respects him. And so I thought that was a really cool thing. Um, As far as on the field... The guy can obviously make plays with his legs and extend plays. Um, I What I took away from his performance versus Duggan's performance versus the other 47 quarterbacks that are still uh, waiting their turn is that there is a place for Alex Delton to play. 
And I think that place could very easily be in the red zone. And I would, I'm hoping that we see, I, we're going to see two quarterbacks against Purdue. I, I, I just about guarantee it. I feel very confident saying that. But I'm hoping that we see more of a type of package for Delton to where he comes in in certain situations, short yarded situations or goal line situations or when the offense, offense is stagnant a little bit because we've seen that he can really move the ball with the legs, not just on that 55-yard run, but just the way that he moves around in the pocket I thought was uh, really, really encouraging. Uh, it's just the arm that needs the, the accuracy that needs a little bit of work still. Yeah, that's that's there was the definite downside to, to Delton's game on Saturday night was that not only was his accuracy off, but his timing seemed to be off too. Uh, he was getting balls out late to guys. He was under throwing passes at pretty much every pass, more than twenty yards downfield was underthrown. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a couple of guys absolutely wide open that if he just even gets the ball to them, um, that's a touchdown. You know that Trey Heights catch in the first half. Uh, where Heights gets down to the three or four and then ends up fumbling the ball because he's got three guys on him. If, if yeah. Delton hits him in stride, that's he's five yards behind the corner, and that's a touchdown easy. He hits Rager in stride on a post that he's running. That's a 20, 25-yard gain, and if he breaks one tackle, that's probably a touchdown too. Instead, Rager has to slide and fall backwards to try and make a catch, and that's just not going to be... You know, That's part of the reason that we saw such... Um, lackluster results from the offense was because of the off-target throws from Delton. Now, I will say, too, a couple of passes he threw that were right on the money were dropped. Rager had a couple of drops. Uh, Darius Davis had a pretty big drop that Delton threw him the ball. So the narrative could be a little bit different, I think, for Delton had the receivers held on to some of those passes. But for the most part, it was just not a good passing game for Alex Delton. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the thing there is that that's kind of what we expected. Uh, we yeah. knew that Alex Delton is a, is a really good runner. Um, he's torn TCU up a handful of times through the years, um, and we knew that he wasn't really a great passer. And so we saw both of those things play out in a way that wasn't surprising, um, but it was still kind of, after hearing so many good things about the way he was throwing the ball in camp, it was a little bit disappointing. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's. Be, and this was people's complaint about Kenny Hill, too, in 2017, is that being able to get the ball where it needs to be and the time it needs to be there is the key to being a successful quarterback in this offensive system. So much of it is timing, and uh, there were just so many plays by both quarterbacks where the timing just wasn't there, and that's going to be a big problem if we're going to see this type of offensive system, screens and, and uh, you know, like little little flare routes and different things like that. If, if, if we can't find a guy that can get the ball there in a timely fashion, it's going to be a long year. It really is. And to his credit, though, Max Duggan, when he came into the game, he was a little amped up. It was pretty obvious, but... It, it, there's just, I know that, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this so that I'm not, it doesn't seem like I'm just crapping on Delton, but Max Duggan's arm, it, it's just, you, it looks different when the ball comes out of mm-hmm. his hand versus when it comes out of other guys' hands. Absolutely. There's, there's zip on it. Uh, it's, it's, he was far more accurate and he did have his freshman moments, but he was far more accurate than Delton, uh, than Delton on Saturday night. And frankly, as slow as the offense moved all night, it did seem to pick up the pace a little bit when Duggan was under center versus when Delton was under center. And I don't know if that's just because there were more passes completed and so they were kind of moving downfield and trying to get into a rhythm. Um, But for for whatever reason, 
the offense seemed to move a little bit faster with Max at the helm. And I think part of that really was because of his because of his arm talent and because he was hitting people a little bit better. I mean, that one pass that he had to Rager for a touchdown, a 37-yard touchdown pass, that was one of the most beautiful passes we've seen from a TCU quarterback in a long time. And I got roasted on Twitter for saying that on Saturday night. But, you know, Kenny Hill, as good as he was, did not throw the ball that accurately downfield all that often. Um, Sean Robinson did not throw the ball downfield with anywhere near that uh, – beautiful of a spiral last season so um, it was really nice to see from a TCU quarterback an on-target throw more than 30 yards downfield oh yeah absolutely uh, I mean the thing we've known about Duggan from the beginning I mean this is an elite 11 kid that means he's one of the best quarterback prospects in the country coming out mm-hmm. as a senior and he can make all the throws like that's such a cliche thing but I keep anytime someone asks me what I think about Duggan and his future I go back to the first open practice where media were allowed to go and they were doing quarterback drills one-on-ones, and it was – I cannot remember who the receiver was, but the, the defender was Ennis Gaines, who's definitely one of the best defenders on TCU's team, um, even in coverage. And in that short area that they had to work, you know, the defense has all the advantage. And Rager was on the far hash – or, uh, sorry, Duggan was on the far hash. He threw about a 15- to 20-yard out route to the near hash, uh, put it on the money, and that ball spun with a whistle. I have not heard a ball whistle like that from a TCU quarterback in a long, long time. Uh, he's got a lot of growing to do. He's a freshman. He, he made some freshman mistakes. Um, you know, there was that one pass in the end zone where he threaded the needle and Rager wanted the ball up to go get it. And he's got some stuff to mm-hmm. work on. But uh, no matter what happens this season, that guy is, is the future quarterback for the Horned Frogs. And, and if he develops the way that he's capable of, the future is going to be extraordinarily bright. And that's exciting. Yeah, it is. And speaking of future of TCU quarterbacks, though, we didn't see Justin Rogers on the field for a single snap on yeah. Saturday night. And I think at this point, the writing is pretty much on the wall for him, don't you? I mean, Patterson is going to continue to tell us that he's not 100% healthy. And I don't think he'd be saying that if it wasn't true. The question becomes... Is he ever going to get to the point to where he is 100% healthy or to where the Horn Frogs are comfortable playing him? Uh, and, and I just I don't see that happening, especially now with Matthew Baldwin being eligible. Um, Justin is, is an amazing kid. He's a great family. Like, I want him to stay and be a part of this program. But it starts to feel like if he wants an opportunity to contribute, it's going to be somewhere else. And, and I hate that for the kid. I, I hate that we're probably never going to get to see him take meaningful snaps for TCU because he has worked his tail off to get back to being healthy. And, and it's, it just doesn't seem like it's happening for him here. So maybe one more year, but at that point, is he going to wait around? I don't know. Like it's really, it's, it's hard to get inside his head and his family's head and it's hard to get inside Patterson's head. And, and there's so much we still don't know, but uh, it's just, he's just not moving in a play to a degree that, the frogs feel comfortable putting him on the field apparently and you know too uh some of the reports out of fall camp were that his he just wasn't making very good reads and you think Mm -hmm. about it this way i mean this is a kid who was very highly touted coming out of high school but in reality you can you take away his senior season which i mean he didn't play because of his his horrible horrible knee injury he had only started 20 football games in his career Hmm. at the high school level coming into a power five program 
And then all of these expectations were just heaped and heaped and heaped upon him. And we're part of the fault of that as well. Um, And all of these high expectations for how he was going to come in and just be a game changer right out of the gate and look how talented this kid is. And I think, you know, it takes some time to adjust to the speed of the game at this level. And for a guy who had only played, who had only started 20 high school games, missed his entire senior season, redshirted last year because he was still recovering from a knee injury. And then all of a sudden to just expect this guy to come in and be the, you know, the next king of everything. I think it's been unreasonable for TCU fans to expect that of this kid. I, I hope that he, he is inching closer towards being completely healthy because if he is, and it does start to click for him, I think he's got incredible talent and he could challenge to be a starting quarterback here. But until he does all of that, it does seem like all of the hopes and all of the dreams that TCU fans and TCU and Justin Rogers had for Justin Rogers, it just doesn't seem like those things are going to come to come to become reality. Yeah, and it's, it really is just an unfortunate situation. Um, but yeah, he's 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 been in the playbook, but unless you're taking live snaps, it's really really hard to to see what that what the game looks like live, and he just hasn't gotten that opportunity because of his health. And so maybe we get that chance to see him. Um, but if not, then, you know, maybe he does get to spend this year learning and rehabbing and, and comes back next year and does, you know, really push for that job. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. I mean, that would be the best-case scenario for him at this point. And in reality, you know, if he is what we think he is and hope he is and he's pushing Max next year to, to start at quarterback, then that's – that's the only good things can come of that for TCU. Absolutely. So Matthew Baldwin, you mentioned this already. His appeal was approved, so he is immediately eligible now. It has been a really strange kind of roller coaster ride trying to get him uh, eligible for TCU. Obviously, this is the transfer from Ohio State, um, who initially his uh, a request to become immediately eligible was denied by the NCAA because it seems like they flip a coin every time. Um, just to figure out whether or not they want to say yes to a kid. And they said no initially, he appealed, and now they've said yes, is what uh, Patterson revealed to everybody on Saturday night. Melissa, does that change anything at this point for the TCU quarterback competition? I mean, yeah, I think it has to. I I think, you know, he's not 100% healthy either, but once he is, now you're looking at a, a guy who's been in a Power 5 program for a year, that went through spring, that, that played in a spring game um, at a really high-level uh, uh, program in Ohio State. And, again, a guy who only started his senior year of high school. So he doesn't. He also doesn't have a ton of experience, but uh, he, he's a good player. I mean, he's a heck of a player. He's a four-star, another four-star guy, a guy that was good enough to be recruited at quarterback by Urban Meyer, who has a pretty good track record of evaluating those types of players. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that, that if he gets thrown into the mix – that he absolutely could push. Um, you know, he, this is a guy who's capable of, of uh, you know, kind of pushing, pushing Duggan is, is not a true freshman and could could certainly try to take the, the mantle this year. Does a lot of the same things. Probably doesn't have the same ball that, that Max has, but just is more experienced player. And we know that, that Patterson does like to go with guys who've been around the block a little bit more. So I expect him, if, if he's on the field, if he's healthy, I expect him to be competing um, to get some, maybe get some playing time in the SMU game and the Kansas game because he's a guy that can't redshirt. He already has. So uh, it's might as well start using him and see what he's got. Between Baldwin and 
Michael Collins is also getting back from an injury and is, is practicing again and is going to be healthy here soon. Do you see a scenario where Alex Delton could be third or fourth on the depth chart by the end of the season? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if if that happens, that's probably the best-case scenario, right? That means that, that one of these young guys has come up and really taken taken the reins and been successful. Um, I think TCU's best offensive situation is Delton being a more of a, of a package-type guy and less of a, a significant you know, offensive option so that you have a guy who throws the ball well with a little bit more zip and a little bit more accuracy, but then Delton still has a role on this team. Um, that to me would be the difference. If one of those, those young guys is good enough to take over, that's the difference between this being, you know, a seven, eight, nine win team and potentially a 10, 11, make it to the big 12 championship type of team. You, you've got to have someone that can throw the ball accurately in this conference. You have to be able to put 30 points on the board. i uh, even with as good as TCU's defense is probably going to be in. And I think to me to do that, it, Delton's not the guy that's going to do that, but he can be a part of it. He definitely can be. I agree with that. And I, I, I was thinking about asking you the same question only with Max Duggan. Do you see a situation where Duggan could be the third or fourth guy on the depth chart by the end of the season too? But I don't, I don't really see that as, as being a possibility at this point. Do you? If, Bald, if Baldwin's healthy, Duggan can redshirt. And, and if those two are pretty even as far as their skill set and, and they can do the same things, do you redshirt the kid who you can redshirt and play the guy that you can't? Or, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's just a matter of can Baldwin – beat out Duggan on the depth chart at this point. And if he can, then I think we're, we're looking at a whole new scenario. If he can't, then uh, – because I, I still see Delton being probably the number two no matter what. I do too. I, you know, realistically too, I think Duggan has such a leg up on Baldwin at this point. Sure. Because he was here in the spring, because he got all of those reps uh, during the spring, uh, spring practice series, whatever, uh, because he's been competing for the number one spot pretty much right out of the gate starting in fall – uh, because he's been totally healthy, I think all of these things put Duggan at an advantage over Baldwin. Now, if Baldwin gets healthy and then just all of a sudden is this incredible, amazing talent, sure, who knows? But I don't. I I really do think that by the end of the season, Duggan's going to be the starter, and it's not really going to be a oh well, maybe Baldwin shows out in practice this week, or maybe Collins does something well in practice this week, or Duggan's. Or sorry, Delton's really improved his passing, so he's going to get some reps. Like I really do think by the end, all of this clutter is going to be clarified, and it's going to be Max Duggan at the helm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty, a pretty fair guess, and that's kind of I think what most Frog fans are hoping for. I, yeah, I think so too. But you know, it's we've got two weeks until the second game of the season, so a lot of this is a little bit cart before the horse. Um, in the next two weeks is they have the bye week and then they prepare for Purdue. What are you looking for um, and hoping for uh, for TCU these next couple weeks? I mean, figure out the red zone. That's really, yeah. to me, what it is. Bring bring a little bit of clarity to the quarterback situation and figure out the red zone offense. Uh, focus on running the football in practice. Uh, and, and I hope that, that every wide receiver – is carrying a football around, you know, in the old school, old school way and sleeping with the football in their hands and, and doing that uh, no fumbleitis by osmosis situation. That That's kind of what I'm expecting these next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think I'm looking for uh, just some more creativity on offense. I hope 
that uh, Cumbie kind of taps back into that creativity where he's drawing up fun plays and he's getting these guys engaged in different ways. And, you know, just watching all the breakdowns of, like, Jalen Hurts and Oklahoma's offense from from Sunday night, um, and they did, like, this fake triple. I think Parker featured this on Twitter at one point today, but they did, like, a um, fake triple option that ended up being a quarterback run to the left. And yeah. it was so brilliantly executed, and it looks like those guys are having fun, and Lincoln Riley's getting creative. And um, I would just like to see a little bit of that, just some hints of that from the TCU offense against Purdue. And, and so over the course of the next two weeks, I would love for news to trickle out of, out of practices that uh, they're starting to really open things up and that their guys are gaining confidence and, you know, yada, 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 uh, that maybe signals some of that stuff is happening. Hopefully this has all just been a giant troll job. I mean, hopefully that's what it was. Hopefully Saturday night was just Patterson saying, I'm going to uh, not show you guys anything, give you something to talk about for two weeks, and then we're going to throw this completely new revamped offense at you. I mean, that's what happened in 2014. We can hope, right? I mean, <laughs> it, we, I mean it's just... Sure, we can hope, I, you know. But, I mean, this time last year we were talking about the vanilla offense against Jacksonville State yeah, or whoever it was, Jackson State, and... It was just that offense all year. What what happened? I mean, honestly, like I know that that we haven't had a quarterback like Trayvon Boykin since 2015, but man, like this is a completely different offense with the same one of the same offensive coordinators and the guy in Curtis Looper who I don't know how much involvement he has in, in drawing out the playbook, but. But man, those guys are capable of. I don't know if this is Patterson locking things down. I don't know what's going on, but it, it does. It just does not at all represent or or reflect what we saw just a few short years ago. It's just kind of insane. It it, it really is because you know it starts to make people ask: Did the right offensive coordinator stay? Yeah. You know, I know that there were some tensions with with Patterson and Meacham and with Meacham and Cumbie based on their roles, and so someone had to go. But, I mean, it's two and a half years removed from us celebrating Sonny Cumbie turning down the Texas offensive coordinator yeah. job. Man, it's and crazy. And now we're saying, you know, wow, this has been an incredibly middle-of-the-road, unoriginal, basic offense for the last two seasons. Yeah. And... You, you, rightfully so, people are going to start to get frustrated and people are going to start to ask questions and uh, change has to happen one way or another, whether Cumbie decides to make a big change and starts to really open up the playbook a bit or if guys a little bit higher up on the on the, on the the totem pole say, no, we're going to make a different kind of change. You know, One of those things is going to happen uh, sooner rather than later at this point, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Melissa, let's take another quick break and then we will go back and look at the rest of the Big 12 from week one. We've got a few questions, and then we will get into some non-TCU football-related TCU news. All right, we are back. And, Melissa, the Big 12 was the only conference in week one to go undefeated. 10-0, Big 12, on top, best conference in the country, very obviously, <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. Hey, you can't you can't lose to an FCS team. Or you can't. Well, we the Big Twelve didn't lose to any FCS teams. Automatically makes them better than most of the other conferences in the land. We'll just say that. Yeah, I mean they played one other Power Five team, and that was Oklahoma State 
beating Oregon State. And beyond that, I mean, you have TCU beating Arkansas Pine Bluff, Iowa State beating Northern Iowa, ranked FCS team. Kansas, last-minute touchdown over Indiana State to get to 1-0. West Virginia beating James Madison. Texas Tech just absolutely shelling Montana State. Kansas State obliterating Nichols. Baylor destroying SFA. Texas destroying Louisiana Tech. And Oklahoma, in a really fun, fun game on Sunday night, beating Houston 49-31. Let's start there, Melissa, because Jalen Hurts had over 500 yards of offense in his debut as the Oklahoma quarterback. Six touchdowns. It was just, his, I think his quarterback rating was like over 250. Um, <laughs> that offense looks like it's just plug and play at this point. Like it doesn't matter who steps in at quarterback. Lincoln Riley's going to turn them into a god. Uh, does Oklahoma lose a football game this year? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because they've shown us that they're in that habit of dropping one of those. Um, I don't think that they're going to lose to Texas, but uh, there, there's definitely going to be a game on the schedule that they just they fall asleep at the wheel or they just aren't quite paying attention. I mean, they, they do have a couple of tough road games um, on the docket. They have to go to Baylor, which is much improved. Um, in Stillwater, I mean, the Pokes can't beat the Sooners. We've seen that. Uh, but honestly, looking at their schedule, I may take that back. They get yeah. every good team at home. They're not going to lose mm-hmm. at UCLA. UCLA is garbage. Uh, the only other road games they have are at Baylor, at Oklahoma State, at Kansas State, everybody else, and at Kansas. They're not dropping one of those more than likely. Baylor, Baylor's probably their best shot to lose a game this year unless somebody can go up into Norman and, and beat them. And Iowa State, you know, they've got a lot of growth to do between now and, and November when they play. TCU's got a lot of growth to do between now and November when they play. Uh, the Red River rivalry is always a... Uh, always a tough one but uh i i don't i don't know that i see them losing a game this year Yikes. i don't think so either that's I unfortunate don't think, I, you know unless tcu figures it out and goes up on the road in norman or iowa state which did it last uh, what two years ago yeah. iowa state beat them in norman right um, yeah no it was last year it was last year because they're in iowa they're in a uh oh no no no, it was the, two years no ago. that game's in norman this yeah, year that was two right. years ago yeah. and yeah, I, their schedule sets up so nicely, and you know there's still everybody was talking about oh how how improved the defense was. Well, they still gave up 31 points to Houston. They looked a lot less stellar in the second half versus the first half. When you come out and you're amped for the first game of the season, big home crowd, everybody's loud, right? Uh, so I, I I'm still the jury's still out on their defense for me. But if that offense is going to be as just killer as it has been in the last few seasons. I mean, they had 686 yards of total offense. They ran for 350 yards. Um, Hertz had 332 passing yards and 176 rushing yards. If, if that offense is going to do that every time, they're, then they're not going to lose this year. Yeah. They just won't. Wow. Um, and, you know, I mean, Congratulations to them, I guess. Good, good luck, Sooners fans. Really finding something to complain about this year. Yeah, I don't, you know, we'll handle just, all of that for you. How about that? That'll it be just seems so unfair. They're gonna do this it again. Is. They're gonna have another Heisman Trophy candidate finalist. Something. Wow, must be rough to be a Sooner fan. It's yeah, it's it's got to be hard, you know, staying humble at least. But <laughs> I guess so. 
on the other side of the on the other side of that coin, though, with OU being uh, looking as dominant as ever, what the hell is going on with Iowa State and West Virginia? Is it just like Iowa State's duty to start every year as slow as possible? And could the Neil Brown era at West Virginia have gotten off to a rockier start? Um, I actually think that that was a pretty good start for uh, that program because I think a lot of people thought that they might actually lose to James Madison. And I think that was a fair thing to be concerned about for like, most Mountaineer fans were quite worried that they would lose that game. I mean, that program had a ton of defections in the, in the off season. People were leaving it left and right. They were really down to a bunch of guys you've never heard of. And so I think getting that win, honestly, was the best, like, it doesn't matter how they did it. Just getting that win underneath their belts was huge for that program. As far as Iowa State, I'm not overly concerned about uh, the Cyclones at this point. If I'm an Iowa State fan, that was ugly. It looked a little rough. Purdy definitely looked like he hit a bit of a sophomore slump. But they've got Iowa next week. If they can bounce back and win that game, it completely changes the trajectory of their season. So, Week one, it's just so hard to predict. Um, the defense looked pretty salty until overtime. They looked a little bit like they weren't quite conditioned. And I guess that's to be expected to some degree in week one when you haven't really taken game-level snaps. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't be worried too much if I was either one of those programs. West Virginia is going to be lucky to win four games this year, so at least they got one under their belt. Uh, Iowa State will have a better idea of who they are when they, when they take on the Hawkeyes. Yeah, I... <laughs> I just, at one point, I looked at the scores as I was uh, at church for a little bit on Saturday, and I saw that of the three Big 12 teams playing, Kansas was the only one that was winning. <laughs> and it was, West Virginia was losing to James Madison, and Iowa State was losing to Northern Iowa. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, at the, I mean, at that point in time, before Oklahoma played, before Texas played, I was like, oh dang, you know, like if TC really shows out on Saturday night and the offense is clicking and everything's looking good, people are feeling good, and these Big 12 teams are struggling left and right, this might be the year that TCU could kind of figure it out and, and get back to the Big 12 championship again. Um, obviously, Oklahoma has me thinking differently now, but um, it's just, it's I can't help but be concerned that the bottom of the Big 12 struggles like that and even a team like Iowa State who I think I had them third or fourth maybe even second in the Big 12 this year in my predictions struggling that hard in week one yeah I'm, I'm definitely in a wait and see mode with them um, but I just the bottom of the Big 12 is just going to be really hot garbage this year I'm afraid and uh, I mean I guess Kansas State looks pretty impressive so so maybe they'll be a little bit better than most expect but uh, it's, it's going to be a roller coaster of a ride here I think for the next 12 or 13 weeks Mm-hmm. I think so, too. But we'll see. I mean, it gives me hope that TCU can beat those teams. Sure. Um, and that's nice, I suppose. Yeah, Absolutely. that's what matters. Um, let's get back to some TCU news, though, here, Melissa, because a former Horn Frog favorite on the football field has a new home in the NFL. After Josh Doxson's fifth, uh, fifth year, the team option for Washington was declined back in May. Another rough fall camp for him. Um, the Redskins decided just to cut him loose. They've been trying to trade him apparently for a year and a half now. Uh, but he has signed with the Minnesota Vikings for a one-year deal just days after they cut Laquan Treadwell. And so it looks like Doxson is going to be wearing purple again. He's going to be surrounded by incredible wide receivers and a quarterback that he is familiar with in Kirk Cousins. How do you feel about Josh Doxson and where he has landed and 
can he resurrect his NFL career? Yeah, to, to quote my, my girl Lizzo, we've got a new man on the Minnesota Vikings, so I'm pretty pretty excited about that. I'm just going to pause for the laughter of all the Lizzo fans that get my joke. Still pausing. Okay, I think you guys have stopped now. Um, so I was really hoping that land a little bit better with you, Jamie, but I don't know, man. It's unfortunate. Look, look I, stand, I, stand, I stand with Lizzo. Like, that, let's not get that twisted. She's phenomenal. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. It was, was a terrible joke. It was, that, was, that was bad, and I apologize. I'm a little rusty, so it's only week, week one and a half. Uh, I would yeah, like no, that I, apology in writing, please. Okay, I'll, I'll email it to you later. Go on the Slack <laughs> channel. Hey, guys, I just want to apologize for making really bad jokes on the Frogs of War podcast. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I legitimately think this is the best possible thing that could happen to Josh Jackson. Uh Seeing a first-round draft pick sucks because you're going to hear it from the fans. People are going to call you a bust and blah, blah, blah. But getting out of the Washington Redskins organization is a miracle. And I am so happy for Josh to be out of that just garbage dumpster fire organization uh, they don't know what they're doing they don't know how to run a football team daniel snyder is a terrible human being uh this is great for for doc and he gets to go to the vikings which is a much more stable franchise they've got a quarterback like he said that he's familiar and with Kirk cousins where he had uh, some of his most success he's got uh two really really good wide receivers in adam thielen and um uh, uh stefan diggs thank you stefan diggs i wrote this earlier and i've already forgotten it um that that will uh, take the Stefan can take the top off the defense. Thielen can can really draw the attention of the defense out of the slot, and so it should open up some space for Doc to go to work. Um, they have a great defense too, so he's going to get a part of it to be a part of a team that wins. I think that that second uh, wide receiver um, spot could be open. I think there's a chance for him to get on the field. They only have four wide receivers on their roster right now. He's the fifth, um, and so there's an opportunity for him not just to to be on the team, but to, to be a playmaker in that organization. And uh, I'm plus it's just a great, great city, uh, just a great place, a great brand new uh, stadium, a lot of positive things for Doc and getting out of Washington and moving on to Minnesota. Absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed. Um, moving back to TCU athletics though. Um, shout out to the soccer team beating number 25 SMU. Uh, over the weekend and moving to three and one on the season, they look like they might be primed for another run at the NCAA this year. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and then also shout out to the women's volleyball team who got off to a three and zero start this season, sweeping all of their competitors in the Cowtown Classic. They they dropped one set against Villanova, uh, but they, they ended up going nine and one overall. Uh, true freshman Audrey Nalls is a name that you're going to hear a lot about this fall. Uh, she is dynamite and they did that without Elon McCall too who is week to week right now with an undisclosed injury so the team is deep uh the young the young players are really 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 good uh Jill Kramer's recruiting you know top top five classes uh we're on the verge of seeing TC become a legit contender for big 12 title and, and that's a really hard thing to do in a conference that has some really great programs, including Texas, um, and, and so you're gonna you're gonna want to catch some of those matches at the Rickle this year for sure. I'm pumped about it because it's fun to just be able to talk about all of TCU athletics yeah. and and finding some level of success. It's pretty neat. Absolutely. So let's um, do the last thing that we're gonna do though on this episode of the Frogs War Podcast, Melissa, and let's make some week two predictions. As everybody knows that's listening at this point, uh, TCU is on a bye. And as much as we hate early early season bye weeks, this might have been the best scenario for the Horn Frogs at this point 
to get that week two off so that they can fix some of the issues that they had in week one. Um, but the rest of the Big 12 is still playing. There are a couple other big games around the country that we're going to talk about. Um, so, Melissa, just give me right out of the gate your picks as I list all of these games. Kansas State hosting Bow- Bowling Green. Uh, give me the Cats. Same. West Virginia visits Missouri. I mean, Missouri looked terrible, but West Virginia is not winning that game. I think West Virginia figures it out and wins. Wow. Big Big 12 upset on the road. Baylor hosts UTSA. Ugh, Bears looked pretty good week one. Yeah. They're going to they're they're going to they're going to be it's going to take a while for them to lose a football game, I'm afraid. I think so too. Give me Baylor. Also, Kansas hosting Coastal Carolina. Uh, Does less, Kansas get to two and zero under less miles? Less is more. They're get they're winning. Uh, they they're gonna look really really good for a couple of weeks until Big Twelve play hits. Oklahoma washes down their meal of Houston with South Dakota this week. Uh, give me uh, South Dakota. Give me the Jack. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, the Sooners are gonna roll once again, and Jalen Hurts' Heisman campaign is going to be off and running. Obviously, Oklahoma. Oklahoma State hosts McNeese State. Yeah, yeah, the Pokes looks pretty good, too. We haven't talked much about them, but uh, they had one of the more impressive victories of week one for sure. Absolutely, they did. Texas Tech is hosting UTEP, one of the worst teams in Division One football this year. Watch out for the Miners. Uh, there, there's quite a bit of emotion around that program. Um, uh, a lot of you guys know Babe Bloffenberg, uh, DFW sports reporter, uh, former mm-hmm. Dallas Cowboys backup quarterback, his son Luke. Uh, was a formerly of A and M, transferred to UTEP as a uh, tight end, was on scholarship, and, and sadly lost his, man, his battle with cancer just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that team has, has been playing with a lot of emotion. There's a lot of uh, there's, they've been galvanized. They're not going to beat Texas Tech, but I, I think that game is going to be a little bit closer than most people anticipate. I don't think it will be. Um, but on that note of Babe Laufenberg's son, there is a fundraiser for a scholarship uh, that people can donate to, and we'll tweet out that link uh, yeah. tomorrow once this episode posts. I might include it in the post for this episode, too. Cool. Um, there's a really cool fundraiser going on uh, around that um, heartbreaking story, and so we'll, we'll boost that a little bit. Uh, the last pick, or the last game happening in the Big 12 on Saturday is Texas hosting LSU. It's a top 10 matchup, um, according to the pundits. Does Texas get to 2-0 with a win over the Tigers? Oh, I mean, game day is going to be there. This would be what happens, right? Is that Texas Tech, or Texas goes and beats LSU. The the groundswell of Texas's back reaches an almighty peak, and then they go and do something stupid like lose to somebody terrible. I feel like that that we're the hype train is going to keep rolling and they're going to eke out a victory over the Tigers. I think LSU is going to win this game. Ooh, on the road with game day in I town. Do. I think LSU is going to win this game, and it's not because Texas isn't back, and it's not because Sam Ellinger is bad. It's because Texas's defense was not impressive to me because it's Louisiana Tech. Who cares that you held them to ten points? Now you're going to have some big boys coming in. Terrace Marshall is a freaking monster at wide Should receiver. Should have been a horned frog. So you, you shut him down, and then I'll be impressed. I think LSU does win this game. I think it's close. I think Texas has some incredible plays. I think Sam Ellinger uh, does it very well, but I do think LSU comes away and wins this game. And I think LSU would actually improve their chances of winning this game 
if they showed up in Maryland uniforms. <laughs> yeah, that's that I just is had to true. Get that in there. Yeah, I just I don't think LSU has a quarterback, and yeah. and I, I think this is going to be a slugfest. Of course, the Longhorns don't necessarily have a running back, and with uh, their true freshman Jordan Winningham uh, sidelined for four to six weeks right now with a. A sports journey, uh, maybe that impacts them. But if they can control the ball and control the offense, uh, I think they've got a great shot to win. But it'll be interesting now with, with uh, Whittingham out, how much does Sam Ellinger have to run the ball and what kind of punishment is he going to take against this regressive LSU defense if he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. The other two games, though, that I want to focus on from around the country, uh, Texas A&M travels to Clemson this week. Uh, Texas A&M obviously was very close to upsetting the Tigers in College Station last year. Kellen Mond looked pretty good in Week 1. Clemson had a couple of hiccups, but they ended up winning pretty easily. Um, What do you make of this game, Melissa? Well, you know, the other thing that is potentially a factor is weather. Uh, This game's being Mm -hmm. played in, in Atlanta, so it should be inland enough. I believe it's being played in Atlanta. Um... So that should help things, but uh, I, I don't think that that Clemson is is dropping this game to the Aggies. I just I just don't see that happening. Um, I think it's a relatively easy victory for uh, for the Tigers, uh, but it's probably going to be pretty close in the first half. I I wouldn't be surprised if it was close. It's uh, it's at Memorial Stadium, so it's at Clemson. Oh, it is. Okay, so that that um, weather could absolutely be a factor in that game. Yeah, Clemson's favored by 17 and a half. Uh, give me A&M on the line, um, but give me Clemson to win the game. Okay, all right. That's, that's, a, good, that's a fair assessment. I think Clemson wins by 10. So wow. somewhere around okay. there. Uh, and then the other games to keep an eye on as Todd Helton coaches for his job is USC hosting Stanford without their quarterback who went down with an ACL tear in week one. I really appreciate you, including Stanford. I will be at this game. Uh, it is my Stanford game for the season. Uh, I think the Cardinals didn't look great in their opening week victory over Northwestern, but without JT Daniels, uh, I think USC is in a world of hurt, and it's this is going to be like the worst, most boring football game in the history of the planet, and Stanford's going to win like 10-9. to 9. But it won't even have the excitement of the cheese at bowl with the interceptions. Is this the game? that starts to really ramp up the rumors of Urban Meyer to USC? I don't think losing this game does it. I think when they lose, like, they go 1-5 and five to start the season or 2-4, and four, that's when I think you start to really hear it. Oh, he's going to come back and do that, isn't he? That's going to be what happens. Mm-hmm. Man. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that guy. What a life. I mean, here's here's... Let's get through the October schedule for USC. They beat Fresno by a touchdown. Then they've got Stanford. They go to BYU. They host in Utah. Then they go to Washington. Then they go to Notre Dame. And then they host Arizona. And then they go to Colorado. They're, the only winnable game there is uh, BYU. You, think they're, you don't think they're going to lose to Arizona? No, I'm saying the, the only winnable game they have is BYU. Oh, That's the only oh, game they're going to win. I think every other every other game is is they're gonna, not going to be favored in a single one of those games. No, they won't be. 
And, I mean, after that, it's at home against Oregon and then on the road against Arizona State and Cal before you come home against UCLA to end the season. You could they might, easily... Uh, realistically, they might be 3-9 and nine this year. Yeah. As I was going to say the exact same thing. That's probably a 3-9 and nine football team, maybe... Maybe four and eight. Maybe they maybe they galvanize, you know, and, and get a little positive something and win one or two extra games. But yikes, that's a it's gonna be a long year for the Trojan fans. It's Todd Hilton's last year at the helm, probably because of that. Yeah, and I would Which imagine that most Trojan fans but are okay with that. Sadly, but I think they are. I think they would have been ready for him to not be mm-hmm. coaching them this year. Yep. So, well, and just as Todd Hilton's career at USC is coming to a close. So is this episode of the Frogs War podcast. Wow. That will do it. Thank you. See, it just took me a week. I'm back in it now. My segues are on point. It's totally, we're all good here. But that'll do it for us on this episode of the Frogs War podcast. Thank you for listening so much. We do really appreciate it. You can follow us on our Facebook page, on Instagram, on Twitter. Obviously, you need to be checking out all of the stuff on frogswar.com every single day. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, everywhere that podcasts are found. You can find the Frogs War podcast. And with that, I am Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Treeblosser. Thank you for listening. Go Frogs. Go Frogs. Go Frogs.